Welcome to the Top Order podcast. For English listeners, our next guest needs no introduction. Making his county debut in 1988 and then his Ashes and England debut in the 1993 series. 100 on debut, facing some of the great bowlers of that test era. Wazim, Wackal, Walsh, Ambrose and Donald to name but a few. Memorable wins for England in Karachi, Colombo and Christchurch and recently been involved with the England squad as assistant coach of their World Cup winning side. Graham Thorpe speaks to us from his home in Surrey. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. Thanks very much. Nice to meet you. Graham, so first and foremost, one of the questions we ask of all of our guests, we just want to get, I guess, an understanding of what made you fall in love with the game of cricket way back when you were a little lad, I believe, batting right-handed in the backyard. Yeah, well, I had two older brothers, and my dad used to just play... Um, uh, sort of village and club football, so cricket uh, in the summer, um, football in the, in the winter. And as my dad used to say, it was just a way of tiring us out, basically. <laughs> we had three lads uh, uh, down the down the street as well, so there were six of us straight away in terms of um, just playing our sports and having a laugh together. Um, and that's what we, we we did a lot of the time. Dad was playing uh, cricket, we'd all, we'd all go down there. And, uh, and 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 play around, have matches ourselves. So yeah, that was that was it. That was a starting point really uh, for us. Um, and then I just uh, I just got involved in some of the, the local cricket and and sports uh, throughout really uh, when I was when I was a young 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 lad. Probably as I said, I probably can remember being about five years old. You know, messing around really with with, with my brothers and, and other people locally, just down the local rec and things. Still late, late, late at night, and then you know, no mobile phones and things like that uh, back then. So we just wander back home <laughs> when we were ready. Yeah, home, home, home in time for tea. And did you play age group cricket all the way through for Surrey? I did. I start. I started. Um, Surrey back then had a like they were sponsored by Mass Cafe. They, um, uh, and so their whole youth system was quite well organised in terms of, even like the local uh, school which I was, I was at, there was some form of like district trials and things like that which the school would, would send you to. Uh, and then there would be uh, the same thing would happen with clubs as well in the local area. So there were, it felt like there was a, a, a bit of a, a pathway back then. Um, and I, I started, um, I represented Surrey when I was 11 years old. Um, and I suppose they, they were able to just keep tabs on 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 uh, their sort of young cricketers coming through, um, and as, that ended up, um, you know, when I got to eighteen, uh, they offered me my, my first professional contract. I must admit, I, I, football was probably um, I preferred football in many ways. Though growing up, out of the two, I generally always used to finish the the football season. Um, you know, so occasionally I, I might be late. You know, to actually start in the cricket season so and I think that changed probably when I was around about 17 um, so I was still playing football actually local club side when I was a uh, professional cricketer in my first uh, two years um, with, with, with Surrey then I got headbutted a few times by some footballers <laughs> and my dad said it might be time might be time to give that one up <laughs> and and look, we don't want to sort of gloss over your early county career, but you, I think, got on the staff or, or certainly made your debut in, in 88 and leading through to your test debut against Australia in 93. 100 on debut. 
is that the pinnacle for an English yeah. cricketer playing in the playing in the Ashes? Um, yes, it, yes, it was really. I mean, but I suppose whichever team I would have been playing against, so it's strange that it would have been a massive thing for me anyway, just making my debut. I mean, it happened to be against Australia. I think in some ways, it's only when I look back, I think, well, that was actually my first Ashes uh, test match. And as you say, you get a hundred on it. I kind of feel at the time, you just you just go out there and, and, and do your best, whatever team you're playing. You have so many nerves, actually, at that stage. Um, and back then, that was a you had a rest day after day three. My first uh, few test matches I played in, we had a rest day after day three. Mm. And uh, I was quite lucky it came to me at a good time. Um, but it was, uh, when I look back now, I think, wow, you know, that actually happened. Took a lot of abuse, I have to say, from Murphy and David Burns throughout the day. <laughs> <laughs> but, it was, but, it was good, but it was good fun. Football prepared me well for critics, I think. And look, we'll definitely come on to that later because I'm sure you've got a sledge or two you can share with us. What... Is the myth around those rest days true? Did you basically get together and you know have a few wines and a barbecue and and, and socialise with the opposition? What were they like? Well, I think I think the era just before that would, would have would have uh, got involved in that a lot more. I have to say, I, as I said, I had I had three test matches before uh, that that uh, that rest day was taken out. Um, but I know what I actually I was I was quite nervous. I only got six in the first innings. I didn't have a particularly good first three days. Uh, and I dropped a catch, uh, scored six, and then actually I I came back home, uh, got back on the train after day three, and I did actually I came back and I just uh, uh, went and saw my parents, and uh, I think I had a couple of beers and a bit of a barbecue out the back, and just chatted with my dad, and um, sort of said no, and I'm really a bit tight, nervous, and just kind of said no, don't don't have any regrets, go back, don't die wondering, you know, and and uh, that was quite fortunate for me to actually have that break. Uh, during the test match, almost to reflect, and then right, go back and and, uh, and and don't make too much of a big deal of it. One of the questions I wanted to to ask was about bridging, I guess, the eras a little bit. So you played in that sort of pre-central contracts era. Your career obviously yeah. went through post those central contracts, and you're now involved with the yeah. side from a coaching perspective. How do those, I guess, yeah. three distinct different eras differ in terms of, I guess, the atmosphere around the squad and the level of professionalism? Yeah, massively. I mean, I often say that my first 50 test matches compared to my second 50 were huge, not just in results, but also that feeling that you really belong to an England team. Um, you probably had a slightly better spaced out um, schedule as well, whereas when I first started, you would finish a test match on a Monday and be back playing the next day for Surrey, which was quite challenging. I mean, when I was younger, I felt it fine. It was more the mental uh, side of things. Actually, you were kind of pretty worn out after a test match, and then you go straight into a county game. So that was that was a challenge, and you also felt like you couldn't actually kick back with the team afterwards, whether you won, lost, or drew. You almost be able to reflect and build a bit of a bonding, I suppose. I think on tour, the bonding came a bit more. But during the home series, you'd finish a test match and not boom, you'd be straight back. You almost felt like a county player being loaned out to England. And then when central contracts came round, the consistency in the selection, uh, the protection, I suppose, more so for your bowlers to stay fit uh, as well. And I think that certainly had an impact then on England's results sort of after 99, 2000. Uh, the results started to go in the right direction for test 
and yeah, that was that was the biggest thing when you became a contracted player with England. I suppose that's when you felt like this this is my team. And occasionally, I go back and I play for my county. And in that era of Test cricket, I mean, I mean, we perhaps hold it higher than than others because it's sort of when we were all growing up. But I mean, the bowlers at that time there was some serious quality around, with especially the pace bowlers, Wazim, Wakar, Walsh, Ambrose, Donald, yeah. and Tini. It seemed like everyone kind of had a a pair of bowlers. Well, I, I'm really interested in in what's what's the mindset of someone who is clearly equipped to face that kind of bowling when you're facing that bowling? Because I mean, as club cricketers or, or something like for us, you know, you you sort of yeah. almost trying to see off the quicks. But what what was your mindset? Yeah, well, actually, when I started, I mean, I, I believe I became a good player of fast bowlers because I almost had no choice. Uh, as you say, at that time, there was a lot of good quicks around. But when I actually I started, I wouldn't say I was a, 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 a particularly good player of fast bowling. I was quite static. And then my first tour in 1994 with England was to the Caribbean. And I got a massive wake-up call. Mm. Uh, I had four bowlers running in at me. And yeah, pretty much 90 miles an hour. Uh, it was a real learning curve for me. I managed to get a few scores on that trip. But I remember coming back off it. I was lucky enough to have Brian Lara on the opposition side. And people like Desmond Haynes and Alex Stewart on our team as well, mm. who seem to cope very well with fast bowling. And I studied them. I just watched them. I watched how they moved their feet. I watched how they got into position almost just before the ball was coming out of the hand. And that really helped me. I came back off that tour and I thought, right, I'm going to do something about it. I've got to learn how to cut and call. Now, I felt I had a bit of bravery about me, but to actually score off the quicks and, and throw a few punches back at them. That's what you still have to be able to do at that level. You know, so you move from surviving to actually, I'm going to get a try and get on top of this quick bowler, which is challenging. But if you you work very hard at certain things, certainly at, um, I came back off that trip in those days. We didn't have side arms and things like that as we have now. But the bowl machine, I just put the bowl on very quickly. I trained my eyes to that speed. Um, and so that was a way of uh, uh, the initial process of me in terms of, because I think I could have just turned away and gone, you know what, that's too tough for me. <laughs> I'll, I'll play, I'll try and play county cricket and leave it at that. But I, I never thought, right, if I'm going to have a career at international cricket, I've got to get on top of playing fast bowling. And that was a, that was a big, big um, factor in it, that first tour to the West Indies. And Graham, it's probably a little bit later on, but I sort of remember, and look, I, I guess I've just turned 40. I, I vividly remember that game in Karachi where... I think you and NASA saw the side home almost in the dark with Moen Khan sort of on the go slow. Um, shortly <laughs> after that, you've got Colombo where, again, you you know, you're playing of, of spin. And we were actually just talking about uh, Daniel Vittorian facing him, I think, in Christchurch and, and playing some unbelievable shots. What's the difference in mentality? And, and did you have to develop that game against spin to the same level you did quicks as, as you went through your career? Yeah, I think initially I was a better player at spin than I was a fast bowler when in my sort of early 20s. Um, but again, I, I can remember going on some um, tours early on, some England A tours actually, to uh, Pakistan, to Sri Lanka, uh, to India. And I watched the local players, how they played. And again, just their movement, their ability to manoeuvre the ball. And actually playing spin, I found like it was good fun. You know, if anyone says playing fast bowling is good fun, they've kind of, you know, there's an element of, you know, it, you've got to kind of get up for the battle uh, against fast bowling. 
it's been, I, I always found it good fun, especially once you knew exactly what you were trying to do in terms of being able to pick length, create time, manoeuvre the ball around. I, I, I sort of, I, enjoy, I, enjoy, I enjoyed uh, playing spinners um, and I found it uh, uh, a real a great challenge to do well, certainly in Asia. Um, you know, I always wanted to do well in other people's backyards, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that a, a real challenge, not just doing well in your home country, but actually doing, doing well abroad to try to become a, you know, a, an all-round uh, sort of batsman, home, home and away. And and I can't let uh, this opportunity go by. I mean, um, Binksy's just mentioned facing Daniel Vittori there. Um, many New Zealand listeners that we have obviously think of uh, the the Test match where Nathan Astle scored at his double hundred. But we sh- we should probably mention yeah. that you had a pretty handy knock in that game as well. I did, and actually, if it wasn't for Nathan, I wouldn't have got anywhere near the runs. He, he dropped me second ball, second <laughs> inning. He did second slip. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's it's strange. Sometimes you know, sport can be like that. Uh, you can get a you can get a break every now and then. And if you go on and yeah, that was my highest set score. And you look back and you go, well, I've dropped, dropped second ball or not. Um, and uh, and yeah, but it was a, it was a hell of a game of cricket. I mean, Nathan's knock was 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 astonishing. I have to say, I've seen some innings in, in, in my career from uh, from some great players, uh, but I can remember how sweet he hit the ball that day. A couple of balls which went out of the uh, Lancaster Park, Andrew Caddick. I said, then for thinking, crikey, that one's not coming back. It was a hell of a game. I mean, it was a wonderful, wonderful pitch. It was a blocking pitch. It did yeah. a bit first up. Um, I'll give my old mate Nathan that. He played a wonderful knock first inning. But then the pitch just flattened out. It was beautiful and through. Wonderful pitch. Uh, it's so much so I can remember just thinking, because I think we won by about 100 runs, but literally if another 10 overs had gone five, New Zealand would have won. I remember Nasser coming up to me and he said, I reckon we've got about eight overs to win this game. <laughs> I said, I still need 100. He said, but they're scoring it's just over. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, did, did how how nervous were you guys that, that he would actually get there? Because, I mean, I guess it was Cairns at the other end as well, so it wasn't it wasn't like it was a bunny at the yeah. other end. No, like I said, the rate he was scoring at, you could, you could actually just work it out. We've got about eight overs to, to win the game. Because otherwise it'll knock him off. Because he was, I mean, he was scoring at ten, comfortably ten and over, and uh, we just, uh, oh god, I think threw in a slow ball, and that was it. But the release, you wouldn't believe it. You, know, you wouldn't win a game by hundred runs. It's impossible. We were running around like we just won an albiter, but that's, mm-hmm. I think how we felt yeah. at the time. That was also the debut hundred for Andrew Flintoff, I believe, in that game. Did you feel yeah. like? Apart from his kind of coming of age as a batsman, did you feel like that little purple patch you had there, where you scored a hundred against Australia and a couple against New Zealand? Did you feel like you really belonged at international level after that point, after having a debut hundred and then scoring a number of fifties, being a high quality batsman for a long period of time? When did you feel like you started to belong as an elite cricketer at Test level? Yes, you know, I mean, my first tour to New Zealand, I think, it was '96. And you know, it was actually on that, for me, it was that tour where I felt like yeah, I'd made that little uh, a turnaround in thinking I, I, I felt like I belonged. And it was probably about, it was about 20 test matches in for me, really. As you say, I'd scored, a, I'd scored some 50s. I probably had about 15 50s and 100. And I went to New Zealand. I got a, I got a couple of 100s. And I started to, came back, played Australia, got 100 in the first test against Australia in 97. And I felt like I was, Right, I played some good quicks now, some good 30s, 
Bernard, I felt like I, I, I understand uh, the game at this level now. Um, and yeah, year in 2000, Fred got his, uh, his first 100. And we always knew he was, he was a bowler you'd throw the ball to. And um, he'd, he'd deliver for you. Uh, he's very consistent. And then I think on that trip, that 100 was a real breakthrough 100 for him as well. Um, and it was, it was fun batting with him, I have to say. Because there weren't any singles there. <laughs> uh, partnership. Um, so it was, yeah, I think that was Fred's sort of uh, starting point with the bat as well. But uh, always, always been a good, good tour to museum. I've always thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, good people. I've actually got family over there. I must say hi to my mother-in-law in Hamilton. Oh, nice. Yeah, in Palm, Palm, <laughs> nice. I mean, what what was touring life like back then? I mean, I I remember I've read um a little bit of research that I did. I read that um you were someone that found things if if things weren't going that well off the field, you found it really hard to perform on the field. Is that is that touring life? Did yes. that have that impact? Yeah. Yeah, I think some people can block can block uh, uh, things out. I, I I couldn't. I mean, I toured a lot, and, and certainly I certainly enjoyed uh, the majority of, of my touring as I, as I do now coaching. Mm. I think you understand what, what what you're doing. It is a job where you spend a bit more time away from home. It's a, it's, it's probably better now because families can come out a lot more, mm. um, and so tours generally get split up better now in terms of uh, families coming out. I have to say that wasn't 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 so much the case when when I was first playing. So that was that was very different. You had to build this sort of bond, you know, as as, as a team, and you and you had to find ways of enjoying yourself and actually getting through those tours. But they could be three months away mm-hmm. in one full. So it's quite a long time, you know. We would never ask our, our guys to do anything near that now. You could have a collective amount of time away touring uh, now as a player, uh, but generally, if you've got family, your family would probably come out after three weeks to a month tops, I would say, uh, if you were if you were touring for a period of time. So so very different. Um, but uh, it's the way life changes as well, isn't it? You know, I think it's much better uh, the, the way it is now uh, for the players and, 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 and actually looking after them and looking after their welfare also. And is that something you do in your role now, like talking to the guys about, I guess, switching off and, and- doing all that because they must deal with I guess they don't deal with the being away from the family maybe as long but they're sort of in the spotlight with all the social media and just everything's they sort of yeah. just always always have to be on yeah they, they, they are you're absolutely right and from our perspective as, as coaches and I suppose having played uh, at that level and and toured you know for over a decade as a player and I've probably done I'd say now that I mean I think coaching but really within England over the last few years I've been in a sort of full time uh, you know, both, uh, both of the test and the one day team now but yes looking after keeping an eye on your players making sure that they, they don't uh, that no one is sort of cut off and so almost from from our perspective as well just making sure uh, that the players well being is in a good place organising things uh, together as a team um as well, so you're doing some things together, as well as just if, if, if the lads are enjoying their downtime as well, like playing golf or getting out, uh, you know, seeing different places, and that's what then that's what you do. But you do keep an eye on it because it is it is important to you know to for players to perform well. Uh, they also need to have an, a, a good headspace. 
Before we dive right into the coaching, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that over the last six years of your career, you averaged 53.49 in tests, and we and we picked up a list of people who averaged that during their time, and that's Intermam, Damian Martin, Sashin, Lara, Ponting, Dravid, Callis, and Matthew Hayden. And that's, that's a hell of a list. Um, and Graham Thorpe's on there as well, the only Englishman, I believe, on that list, if I'm Ooh. reading it correctly. Was, was that a tough decision to retire at the time that you did? No, no, very, very easy actually. I have to say, uh, and that that last phase I had, and, and I um, I went through a divorce, and I met uh, Amanda, who's, who's my wife now, and I was very lucky. I was about thirty-four, and I played under Michael Vaughan's uh, team with him for about twenty-five, twenty-seven tests. I think we won about twenty-four of them. It was a brilliant period. It was obviously leading into when England regained the Ashes in two thousand five. But on 2004, my last tour to South Africa, I was 36, and I felt it. I felt, actually, I remember one of the test matches, uh, I just woke up in the morning, and I just thought, crikey, you've got to get yourself up again mentally, physically. I was struggling a little bit with my back towards the end of my career. Mm. And I can remember that, that nasty little thought which comes into your head, and I think once it comes into your head, it's hard to get rid of it. Well, you just think, how long, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And that's a, quite a scary thought for, for any professional sportsman when they actually feel that. But I did. And I suppose in some ways I, I, I started to mentally just think about what I might do after I was finished. And so I just, I scraped through that 2004 uh, South Africa uh, series, uh, which, which we won. And we came back and played two tests with Bangladesh. Uh, Kevin Peterson and Ian Bell were emerging uh, players. Mm. Um, Kevin had played a brilliantly in a, in a one-day series with South Africa. Um, and to me, he was always going to play in that series. He was exactly the type of young player you would put up against Australia, uh, you, you know, against a team like that and what he was like as well. And Ian Bell was coming through as well. So and when when it sort of came that I, I, I wasn't selected, A, I wasn't particularly surprised. Mm. Um, but B, I was also ready for it. And it, it didn't ever... I mean, don't get me wrong, I would love to, I, ne- I didn't win the actual, I would love to have played in 2005, but in many ways I was mentally in a good place. And um, I'd already just accepted to do coaching in, um, in New South Wales, uh, with, with, uh, with the you know, New South Wales team. So I had a little bit of a, you know, I was planning a little bit for the next part of my life, really. Not knowing whether I was going to, go full-time into coaching at that time, but it was an opportunity, great life experience as well. Lived in Sydney for two and a half years, young family, you know, all under, yeah, the kids were under five at the time. And so it was a, it, it, it got me out of being a player very quickly as well and roll your sleeves up in life, you know, and, and go and do something different and fend for yourself. So I didn't have that much time to dwell on, on, on not, not playing, but actually I'd never missed. The minute I stopped playing, I didn't. I didn't miss it. I almost felt like I'd done my best. I'd done as long as I could, and, and life moves on. So I felt very fortunate in that way. Um, but, uh, probably fortunate to get that last phase back, um, playing under Michael Vaughan for, for a couple of years, and I really enjoyed it. I think those stats would probably, you know, show that as well. I think um, I, I, I loved that last phase of my career. It was fantastic. What were you thinking on that? I guess Oval Monday when the guys lifted the urn, did you? Did part of you just think, oh, if I if I could have hung on three more months, that would have been me, or had you made your? I guess yeah, po- yeah possibly, possibly. But it, you know, I've never been one for sitting there, you know, with with regrets. Life 
it, it, you, you, you do what you do in your life, whatever you, you do, it's, it's, and you try to just enjoy what you're doing at that moment. And it's funny, I remember I was, I was pushing my daughter in the pram along Putney <laughs> at the time. So I was out, funny enough. I was out, but I saw it, I saw it on my phone and everything. So it was, it, it, it was a moment where you, where you're looking. So it was brilliant for English cricket. It really was, you know, it's kind of a combination of actually English prison as well, getting their act together as well with central contracts from, from what, 1999, 2000 through mm-hmm. to, you know, 2005. Um, and so it was, it was a fantastic, uh, uh, moment for English cricket. Uh, but the, I never look at it and think like, I always say that's, just, that's the timing of life. You know, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't ever change things. I just look back and I think I was very, very lucky, very, very fortunate to, to do something I loved doing, and I did it for, for a long time. And I look back, I had no regrets on the game. So I, I always felt very, very fortunate. And you touched on there how you, you made the first move into coaching. How did the, the England job come up? I saw you involved with the Lions before that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I came back from uh, New South Wales, which I said I learned so much. I coached at lots of different um, environments as well. So I coached a bit of, um, I think they call it soccer in Australia. I coached a bit of football in a lo- local local primary school for like seven, eight year olds, and then and and that takes a different type of skill to look after seven, eight year olds. And then I coached like the New South Wales women team for a couple of evenings. Then I do the academy lads, football, uh, the cricket lads at New South Wales. Then the second team, and then I also helped out with the first team. And then my sort of second year, Trevor Bayless, funny enough, was head coach at the time. He moved to Sri Lanka and, and Matthew Mott became head coach and I became the assistant coach. Um, so the environments I'd worked in actually helped me a great deal. You know, different different sort of skills. You have to be quite adaptable um, to work in different environments. And it taught me a lot quite quite quickly. And I came back from uh, Australia after about two and a half years. And I worked with Surrey, my old, uh, my old county, for, for two years. And then England offered uh, me a role at the ECB, working with almost the emerging players as well. And also then when Ashley Giles took over as head coach, he asked me to come involved in the one-day team. And actually, I sort of stayed involved with the one-day one team all the way all the way through. So I probably did a lot more work, with the, funny enough, with the, the one-day team with England. But I did a lot of just work with younger players underneath. So a lot of those guys came through now, you know, Roots, Stokes, Bairstos, Butlers, well, they, these guys, I remember they were like 19, 20. I was around them, so actually I could could see that they were, had a great deal of potential. So I really enjoyed that, that looking at a player and thinking, what's he got about him? You know, could he, could he, could he actually make it? And it's funny, everyone says, oh, he was destined to make it, he was destined to make it. But there's so many steps and which players have to go through to actually then get to the top and be a, a really good performer. They have to probably alter certain ways, uh, the sacrifices they have to make. They have to become more professional. The game is very uh, different, I would say, to what it was 20 years ago. Um, and, and so sacrifices which players have to make at that stage in their lives as young men, how quick they can mature, is massively important. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, how hard is it to gain players' trust? I guess when you someone has performed at a high level to get to the point that they're at, and then you, as a coach, maybe is trying to to change something, whether that's mindset or technique. 
Yeah, well, I, 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 you're absolutely right. The first thing I try to do is actually just build a relationship with them. I really, that, that is so important. I've probably got better at that as, as, as years have, have gone on within my coaching as well. And I think, again, depending on what environment you're working in, at the, at the highest level, I think once you've been around a player for a certain period of time, a lot of it will be mental, a lot will be just checking in that he's in a good place. I'm picking out maybe little bits of it if they're potentially getting lazy and you can flick back to a video of them or a recording of when you believe they were playing a, a, a certain way and then just compare it to what they're doing. So almost just have a checklist sometimes for a player as, as they go through. But again, the right time to say things to a player, the way you say it to a player as well uh, is very important at the highest level. Uh, and, and and also sometimes I do believe you want players to be able to work things out as well. Ultimately, you can't play for players, so it's that skill of trying to um, see a player develop and and almost you know that he's going to have to make good decisions out in the middle when he's playing. So you want to work him towards that, and that's a fine balance because you can't when they're when they're younger you can't always stand off. I think you are, or the only thing I ever say generally to batsmen are things like, "Have you got enough time to play your shot?" You know, so if they, you know, if you push you further, you, you might suggest a few ideas to them. Let's try this, maybe try that, see how that works out. But allow the player then to, get, to go off and, and practice and, and try to come up with the answers himself as well. So I think that's the, the sort of the, the balance which you work around. I think when you're a bit, bit younger, occasionally you might have to be prescriptive to them. Occasionally, just say, you've got to play fast bowling well, you've got to play spin well. So these are, these are things from a batting point of view which you, you're going to have to do well and, and manage. So how, how do we want to go about doing that with you? So you're trying to almost sometimes get them to, to come back with things. Oh, should we do this? We go, right, okay. Yeah, rather than you say it, they're actually saying it to you. I find that those ones are probably the ones which end up going uh, and progressing quite quickly as a player. And you you touched on before your involvement in the, in the World Cup squad uh, in the one day squad that World Cup win. I mean, it, it seemed from the outside that it was a real four year kind of plan for for England, and and you don't often see those come off in in that way. I mean, that must have been incredibly rewarding for you guys as a squad. Yeah, it, it was. We had to make some real big changes. So you go back four years to the World Cup, which was in New Zealand, Australia, and. We fell off off the pace, um, and I think that we had to really revisit the type of personalities we needed in that one day team. We needed people prepared to take risks who were going to really, and they weren't. And we weren't going to um, analyze things for a while. We were just going to. I think when Alan Morgan took over, he wanted the team to play a certain way. Trevor Bayliss came in and, and sort of managed that environment as well, and we allowed players to take risks without really jumping all over them if we made mistakes as well. So we trusted them. We thought we had the right personalities uh, going in four years before. We thought we're going to have to be brave, trust them, and allow them to uh, to express themselves as well for a period of time before you almost try to look at a little bit more detail. But I think that was very much from, from Morgan's vision of, of how he wanted to, for that team to play. And of course, we know it got very tight at the end. If you think to the, you know, if we come all the way forward to, to the World Cup final, and that's that's the, the sometimes the luck you, you you need as well. You know, to, to no one will say that you don't need an element of luck in there. And we know we got a, we got some huge prices of luck in that World Cup final against New Zealand. But 
it was incredible to be involved in, um, uh, I suppose, the planning and identifying players who could play in a certain way for you uh, four years back and that to then to see uh, that the team achieve, uh, you know, their, their goal, which was to win the World Cup. And uh, as you say, by that little uh, tag of luck along the way, we got there. But it was a hell of a final. I have to say that the, the, the New Zealand team were unbelievable afterwards. I have to say that. Uh, to see a, a team which has been involved in that and must have been massively deflated and disappointed the way they were as human beings after the game was phenomenal. Their graciousness and you know, to see both teams out there at Lords, you know, having a beer, talking with the families on both sides, I, I thought that was unbelievable. Yeah, I want, I want to touch upon that. I'll take you into at my living room first. I watched the game with these guys um, and all, all of us, except the Aussie, who was he was actually crying a couple of days before. <laughs> but all three, all, all three of us were, were crying for different reasons um, at the end of that final. Ta- take us into the, the changing room afterwards. And I guess I've got two questions here. Number one, what were the celebrations like? And number two, what do you feel as a coach versus as a player celebrating a you know a big win like that yeah it was straight it was look Trevor Bayless I, mean, I think he gave an interview he said myself and Paul Collins would jump around jumping around like lunatics at the end you know on, on on the balcony because of just because of the game constantly going backwards and forwards and to finally actually the game to be to be finished I mean either you're going to be deflated or you're going to be in ecstasy basically that type of uh, match uh, so it was on a nice edge, you know, all the all the way through. Where you got that feeling in your gut. It's funny as a coach. I don't know whether you get it as a player. Maybe you do. You just don't do your job as a player in many ways. That's all you ask them to do. Try to just break it down. But I suppose coaching, you can't, you know, do that much about it. And I think as coaches, we try to remain uh, level. You know, you try not to show too much emotion uh, in a dressing room generally through coaches, so I stay quite calm because the game can go up and down. But I think that moment when it was over, um, uh, we, we, we were jumping around like lunatics in our dressing room. Yeah, you know, and then that was that was the way it was. But as I said, that afterwards was, was I suppose, it learned. It would have taught lots of us, if, you know, because we, we, we were victors on the day, but if we have moments in our careers, whether it's players or coaches, I always say the New Zealanders set the most amazing example for how you should how you should be, and uh, I think that that will stay with us, you know, forever. Certainly with certainly with me, you know, seeing seeing that how they were behaved as uh, as as a, as a team afterwards. But it was, you know, it was obviously when I look at it, it'll be one of the best days I've ever been involved in. I think whether from player or coaching perspective. And with cricket on the horizon again, what's it been like for you to step back and and join the squad again? And and what do you guys have? What have you guys been up to getting back into training? Yeah, well, I've, we started. We had our bowlers start two about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I think they, they our bowlers were the first to start. And then we had our sort of uh, we've had regional sort of areas. So I've been at the Oval with about eight or ten of our. Our players are involved in the sort of with 55 players who was sort of put together. So regional uh, work is going on about six or seven of of the grounds. And so we did our first week back at the Oval. We've got another two weeks leading into uh, June the 23rd, which is the West Indies obviously arrive in two days' time. Um, we're going into these um, environments which uh, are, are deemed safe. 
Um, and we would probably be looking at going down to Hampshire on about the 23rd of June for two weeks. Uh, probably locked down as well. Um, and then we'll play three test matches, one in Hampshire, two up in Manchester. So at the moment, things are, are in place. The West Indies are arriving. We're in training. Uh, I suppose it's fingers crossed that everybody is, is, is healthy coming into those environments. And that actually uh, we can we can get international cricket back up and running again. Are there any concerns in the squad? I, I, and look, I, there's going to be concerns from a health perspective, no doubt. But all the yeah. advice from the medical professionals will be yeah. well received, I'm sure. What about just the the things that I guess are quite prevalent in the press at the moment? The ball might not swing. There's going to be some compromises to the way the game is played. Potentially substitutes coming in. Is there a feeling it's not yeah. quite going to be test cricket? I don't, it, it's a bit like playing behind closed doors. It's going to be a different feeling. But in some ways, all these players have played behind closed doors at some time. With Now, probably in their careers, they're not, they won't be used to it. But it will be something which we have to do. Things have changed dramatically. I mean, for many people around the world, you know, it's been a, uh, it, it's been a very... <laughs> Yeah, tough period. You know, very tough period. Um, and and so coming back into into cricket, you're trying to be respectful of everything which has happened uh, in people's lives in this period as well. Listen to, to, to the to the guidelines which, which we're being told. Um, and naturally, I think once people start to get back out onto a cricket pitch, they're training, and they could be in a position where they're playing a match against each other. I would imagine those competitive juices will start flowing again. Um, and uh, uh, I'm sure people out there will, will, will love to just be able to see sport again back on back on their TVs as well. So the concerns, I mean, from our medical perspective, trust our medical people you know, uh, to the hilt, you know, the, what, the, what they're telling us. I think they're wanting everybody to be probably as cautious as, we can, as, as they can be as well, to the delicacy of it, to making sure that the game do go ahead. Everyone is obviously tested uh, beforehand and everything. So I think just trying to keep the environment safe in this period, while I suppose even the UK is slowly easing um, and coming out of this lockdown. Uh, but we realising that we we do have to still be very sort of uh, uh, cautious in the in way in the way we go forward with it as well, and certainly how sport takes takes place in that environment as well. You're in almost a unique opportunity now with that extended squad that you've effectively brought your own warm-up opposition into that squad as well. As a guy who gets yeah. a lot of um, joy as part of your role out of identifying talent, how excited are you about you know maybe some of these young players that have been mentioned like Dan Lawrence, uh, Dan Lawrence, sorry, maybe Will yeah. Jacks, Henry Brooks? Are you excited to be able to bring yeah. those guys into the squad and maybe unearth some some new talent for England cricket moving forward? Yeah, well, it's, it's always good. I mean, you can keep an eye on certain players through domestic cricket or some of the England Lions tours, which people go on as well, players which go on. And so you can sort of see how they're performing. And then once you get them in, in, in front of you as well in that environment, that's always, that's always exciting. You get to know a little bit more about their characters as well, which is, uh, which is a massive thing in terms of uh, playing um, at, at the highest level as well. So that'll be uh, a good period. At some stage, we're probably going to have to reduce um, uh, the, the squads uh, down once we actually go into the period of um, you know the test matches. I mean, we could, but we could end up with a 24 uh, players in the squad. 
and it'll be a challenge. One of the challenges probably players will face is they won't have as much. You know, normally they play some domestic cricket before going into a test series. So, sort of one of the things to try to speak to them, they've got to be a bit at peace with the situation they're going into. To me, a certain amount of nets, but potentially maybe only one 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 warm up game. We might be able to have a, a, a couple of scenario matches. Uh, beforehand, but really we might only get one warm-up game, which would be amongst ourselves, basically. Um, so that'll be a challenge for the players. And there's been some talk of, I guess, segmenting the squads and perhaps players needing to make choices on which format they might feature in. Is that part of the the problem that you're facing, or do you see the likes of a, you know, a Joss Butler being available for both tests and and the limited over stuff? Yeah, at the, at the moment, not 100% sure. I think the early talk is potentially because of um, you know, the situation in terms of keeping your environment safe, that the squads may have to be split and separated. Um, and I think that's going to be, become clearer over the next uh, week, uh, really, um, how, how that's actually going to be a move forward and whether at any stage this summer people can move in and between those environments. I, I think the the more we move um, to ease the lockdown, the potential of, of people then being able to move, um, it, it will become a possibility. But it's very dependent on the situation here in the UK still. Um, uh, as you say, that the, 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 the less positive tests which we get across the board, not just in the sport environment, but uh, through the country, will, will assist in, in that progressing forward. And potentially, this is uh, you know you you not have no idea for now. But I mean, has there been any talk about kind of the end of the year? Obviously, the the T Twenty World Cup was planned, and um, mm. you know the whole yeah. sort of summer. Has there been any thought to what that might look like for you guys? No, no, not not as yet. I mean, there's a bit of you know this could happen, that could happen, uh, rather than everything concrete. I mean, as you say, probably the West Indies things only just been agreed over the last sort of week and uh, as I say they're due to fly in on Tuesday and obviously Pakistan beyond that I suppose all we can do is actually just deal with right here right now uh, and, and, and look towards um, this training period and then the West Indies test matches and then hope off the back of that if everything runs successfully um, the Pakistan series we play Ireland I think as well Australia were potentially coming at the back end of the summer so I think everyone's going to be looking at what happens and decisions we made off the back of that. A tour to India for England, a one-day tour, and then it was going to be the World Cup in Australia. So I think those things at the minute are almost too far away. But I think you'll be aware that a T20 World Cup needs preparation and time and organisation. So at some stage, however long that running period needs to be for organisers to, to arrange everything, like hotels, practice grounds, everything for 16 countries to go into They'll need a kind of a deadline day where they have to make a decision. So these these, these are these are challenging times uh, for everybody, administrators and, and, and people who have to make decisions on whether uh, tournaments can actually go ahead, and they feel that it's safe to, for for it to to be cleared to go ahead. Awesome. And the golf clubs will be in the car on the way down to their GS Bowl, will they? There's a pretty nice course. Yeah, there. I'm for it. Cricket ruined my golf career, that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> so I was never a big golfer, but I, I, I'm, I'm okay on the par threes. That's about it now. I can't, I can't pull the big uh, big driver out like I used to. 
no, there must be uh, some power hitting in your uh, in your coaching vernacular that you can you can draw up well, on Graham. Well, I leave that more for the younger lads now. Guys, uh, they're keen golfers, lots of them. That's all I can say. So they will be uh, a little bit of one, one good thing, I suppose. I mean, the challenge of being in, the, in those environments will be, it'll almost feel like, potentially, if we are uh, not able to come in and out of that environment, it'll, it'll be a weird thing, almost feel like you're touring in England. Mm. Um, and and that, that'll be something unique, which, which again, we'll have to... Uh, uh, sort of work through, uh, to be honest. But certainly having a golf course by the side will be uh, will be uh, a, a nice for the lads to have. Awesome. Well, look, before we let you go, Graham, we do want to just fire through um, some quick-fire questions, which we finish with every guest on the podcast. So first and foremost, yeah. what's your favourite innings when you look back? My favourite innings was against uh, South Africa when I returned to the team. Um, uh, yeah, at the Oval. So when that, so that was uh, 124. I'd been out the side for a while, um, and I came back in. The 124 at the Oval against South Africa was probably because it was mentally probably my hardest thing I, I had to play. Yeah, um, and I, look, I remember that well. I was playing a Birmingham League game on that day, and the tea break um, was in situ as you were approaching your three figures, and there was about. 60 players at that club game um three grounds all converging watching you get that 100 i remember it remember it vividly who who was the toughest bowler you you faced in your career uh wasi makram wasi makram from a from a from a theme perspective um he was and then shane warm was the best spin bowler i'd i'd ever 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 face as well you know such an accurate uh, you know, bowler, uh, huge spinner of the ball, um, good skills, and love the theatre of it as well. Great playing against him. So Akram and Shane Warne would be the would be the two two main ones. Your favourite ground? Favourite ground? Well, I'm going to have to say the Oval, but overseas Barbados. Yeah. And I often say to, to the players, I say, what's your favourite ground? And they go, well, generally one where we won and I scored runs. <laughs> Who, so um, I must have been, I was going to say, this winter, obviously, we had a fantastic win in Cape Town. And everyone used to say to me, this is a beautiful ground, isn't it? You must have loved playing it. And I went, lost two test matches and didn't get many runs. So, <laughs> 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 but it was brilliant there to be a coach and winning that. It was a phenomenal test match, which we had there in the winter. So look, I'm sure um, you don't have to share rooms anymore now on tours. But if you were going into the Aegeus Bowl for eight weeks, who would your yeah. who would your roommate be if you had to pick one? Well, over the years, I have to say who was a good roommate uh, was Mark Butcher. He was very good on the guitar, oh, yeah. and he could have a good sing along uh, with him. So, he, so that I roomed with him in the Caribbean a couple of times. So you sort of used to have these small chalets actually, um, and and Butch was brilliant. You know, give me a guitar. I liked a nice cold beer from time to time, and uh, and he was a, a, a decent musician for he's us just, to be entertained by. He's just released an album, has he? I thought I saw. Yes, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, I went to a, the one of his openings um, about six months ago oh, uh, nice. up in up in London. Yeah, talent, talented man, butcher. What's the best sledge you've either been a part of or you've heard on the? 
on the scene. We're trying to crowdsource a, a book of original sledges. So can you give us a new one that we haven't heard? Well, you may have heard, but I must admit, when I first toured the West Indies and I tried to play a really bad full shot against Courtney Walsh, and, uh, he just, he, and the West Indians generally never used to say anything to you. And, and Walsh, Walsh, he just came very close to me and said, have you got life insurance? I really didn't have any comeback whatsoever. <laughs> and we'll, yeah. we'll we'll finish on a slightly serious one. When you when you look back now, what's the proudest moment of your career, whether it be playing or, or coaching? Oh, I think really when I look back in, in my career, just um, the fact that I felt like I, I, I made the most of it. Uh, I made the most of it. Simple as that. I, I don't I don't have any regrets about my playing career at all. When I look back at it, it's as simple as that. I felt like I, I made I made the most of myself as, as a player. I got I got the, the as much as I could out of myself as a player. So that would be my proudest proudest thing about the, about about the game. Well, Graham, as a, certainly as an Englishman, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you for 45 minutes or so. Wishing you all the very best Thank as you go into um, yeah, your bio-secure bubble. And look, here's hoping for cricket fans all around the world that we yeah, get some get some cricket on TV and that everybody stays, uh, stays safe. But look, thank you very much for your time on the Top Order podcast. Pleasure. Thanks very much, guys. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Top Order podcast. Before you disappear from our feed... If you're a new listener, please do go and check out the back catalogue. We've spoken recently to New Zealand coach Gary Stead. We've got Graham Thorpe. We've got Shane Dietz. We've got Barry Richards, Shane Bond, Colin Miller, all in the back catalogue. You can find the details www.thetoporderpodcast.com. With the Top Order Podcast on Instagram, although we're still really figuring that out. We're at Top Order Pod on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy to jump on. Give our tweets a share or a retweet and we'll see you next week.